fastest growing religious group in the United States is a group called the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those with no religious affiliation. Who are these nuns and what accounts for their religious disaffiliation over the last 30 years? We'll answer these questions more with our guest, political science and pastor Ryan Burge from his updated book called The Nuns. This is part two of our discussion. We talked last week about uh, his book, The Great Dechurching, and this is part two of that. Uh, we look forward to our conversation. I'm your host, Scott Ray. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell. This is Think Biblically from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Ryan, welcome back for part two. Uh, we're looking forward to the discussion. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, how did you get so interested in studying the nuns? I mean, you're both, you're both a pastor and a political scientist, so you've got a little skin in the game here. But uh, there are a lot of political science you know, subjects that you could have, could have focused your research on. What was so interesting about this group, the nuns? Yeah, I mean, I, I got in the pulpit. I've been in the same church for 17 years now. I started actually when I was in grad, my second year in graduate school. I took over the, the pulpit of First Baptist Church in Mount Vernon, and we had 50 people when I got there. And then five or seven years later, we had 30 people. And now we have 10 or 12 on a good Sunday. Um, every uh, every church I've been a part of um, is smaller now than it was when I was there. And that might be because I'm a terrible pastor. We weren't going to go there. Well, I mean, maybe I'm just bad luck. But it's it, the thing is, like, I, I wanted to know if my experience was the experience, right? Is this a universal thing or is this a unique to me thing? And I knew that I had these tools that most other pastors don't have at their disposal of, of getting all this graduate training in, in methodology and, and data analysis. And I thought, you know what? I want to try. I'm going to scratch my own curiosity itch. And then other people can kind of come along for the journey and, and see these graphs I make and maybe learn something alongside me. And, and that's really where the, the seed of the nuns idea came from was a tweet um, that I sent out before COVID and the before times, as we call it now, right? And um, I had I was a no-name account. I only had a couple hundred followers. I was just tweeting graphs about religion over and over. And this one just went viral. Um, I, everyone wanted to talk to me about it. Um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Times of London. I made the front page of Reddit, got 70,000 upvotes. Wow. Um, yeah, it was like my life turned upside down in, in a very short period of time. And um, all of a sudden, I became like the guy to call about American religion, especially American religious disaffiliation. So when I was approached about writing a book, I thought, well, why not write about what people care about? And it's been exceedingly clear to me that they care about the rise of disaffiliation and, and what that means and why it's happening. And so that's exactly why I wrote The Nuns is because I knew this is what there's already a groundswell of, of desire for more information about this. And I thought I could pro provide some in a in a digestible, easy to understand way. Well, you are definitely our go-to guy, that's for sure. Hey, I'm a little disappointed you didn't mention the Think Biblically podcast <laughs> with the New York Times and the Washington Post. Well, obviously. Oh, and I was on I was on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper, too. That's probably below you guys, I assume, right? <laughs> for sure. No, no debate about it. Well, tell us what you mean by the term the nuns and how it's different than the de-churched. Yeah, so nuns are people. It's a it's a religious belonging question, right? So, which what is your present religion, if any? That's the question. And then we are given a list of of eleven different options, and they and they range from Protestant to Catholic to Mormon to to Orthodox, and there's Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, um, and the last three are atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. And those are the nuns, people who say they are mm. atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. They are the fastest-growing religious group in America today. In 1972, 5% of Americans were nuns. And today, 30% of Americans are nuns. 
And amongst Generation Z, it's over 40% of Generation Z are nuns. So it is changing everything about American religion, the fact that the nuns are rising so rapidly and it's having ripples and impacts on literally every aspect of American society. Now, Ryan, it sounds like that has something to do with belonging, but it sounds like that also has a lot to do with belief. Oh, so what's really interesting is belief and belonging don't run on the same tracks all the time. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, one of my former colleagues at EIU is talking about religion because obviously we talk about religion because it's what I do. And he goes, you know, I've been going to church for like 30 years and I don't believe in any of that stuff. You know, I just go because I like the socialization. I like the good work the church is doing in the community. So he's a, a belonger, but not a believer. And there are people who are believers, but not belongers, right? They mm-hmm. believe in God without a doubt. and They believe in Jesus Christ and the Bible is literally true, but they don't go to church at all. You know, the behavior, belief, belonging circles for some people overlap in very odd ways. You know, they might belong, but not believe or behave or vice versa. So this, the nun specifically, was looking at the belonging measure first, which I think tells you a lot. For instance, if I'm a Protestant or I, I grew up Protestant, let's say. And I haven't been to church in five years. When I'm asked the question, what's your present religion of any, if I say Protestant, that's a whole lot different than me saying nothing in particular. Because it still says I, I identify socially with what Protestants are. And they're my people, even though I don't go to church anymore. If I instead say I'm an atheist or agnostic or nothing in particular, I'm saying I've rejected everything that has to do with religion. And to me, and you can look in the data, that's a big leap from being a never-attending Protestant to being a nothing in particular. So, Ryan, how large a group is the nuns in terms of so as absolute numbers? Yeah, so 30 million Americans are nuns, and there's about 330 million Americans total in this country, so about 100 million people now um, identify as atheist, wow. agnostic, or nothing in particular. Um, to put, you know, if we compare that, let's say, to Western— I can only give you um, attendance measures with, with Europe. That's the data I have. Um, about 25% of Americans attend church every week. It's about 14% of Europeans. Um, what's really interesting, though, is if Poland was in the United States, it would be the most religious state in America. 44% of Poles go to church every Sunday. But then on the other end, only 3% of people in Denmark go to church every Sunday. They'd be easily be the least religious state. So America is sort of um, – we. the average American is more religious than the average European – um, but not by much, and the gap seems to be closing over time. I don't think we're ever going to get to the space where we're as irreligious as Western Europe, especially as Scandinavia, um, but I think we're trending in a much more secular direction now than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Can you break down the nuns a little bit? Because it almost seems strange bedfellows to have the three groups that you described. Who exactly are they? What do they have in common? And how do they differ, even though they fall under this larger umbrella of the nuns? Yeah, so there's atheists and agnostics. I almost grouped them together in my mind okay. because we, we call them secular people. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction that I want to highlight. Um, secular people have thrown off religion and replaced it with a secular worldview, right? Humanists, rationalists, science. Um, all those things. They they have a framework to think about the world. You can agree with it or not, but they have one. Nothing in particulars are a completely different animal because they've thrown off religion, but they haven't replaced it with anything else. We call mm-hmm. them non-religious people because they're not secular and they're not religious. So they're almost defined by what they aren't instead of what they are. 
Atheist agnostics are defined by what they are. They've, they've embraced this secular worldview. But here's the most important part. Most nuns are nothing in particular. About 60% of nuns are nothing in particular, and about 20% are atheists, and about 20% are agnostic. So when we talk about the nuns, especially when I talk to evangelical crowds, they want to think, that well, that's about that. You're talking about atheists here. I'm actually not talking about atheists here. I'm primarily talking about nothing in particulars. And the differences between, let's say, an atheist and the nothing in particular demographically cannot be any bigger. Okay. Mm-hmm. 51% of atheists have a four year college degree. 51%. They're the second or third highest um, educated group. The lowest educated group, religious educated group, is nothing in particular. 25% of them really? have a four year college degree. So 50% versus 25%. When you look at economics, like you add the economics and education together, one third of nothing in particulars have a high school diploma or less and make $50,000 a year or less as a household. One in three of them. Amongst atheists, it's only 12%. So from a, from a pure demographic perspective, one group is doing very, very well. Atheists are doing very, very well. And nothing in particular are doing very, very poorly and falling behind every year on all these factors that we know matter, education and income specifically. So there's a lot of concern there from a social science perspective about nothing in particular and how they fit into American religion and American society. So Ryan, help help our listeners understand a little bit a little bit more without getting lost too much in the weeds on this. How do how do you measure religious affiliation and disaffiliation? You know, it's honestly not that complicated. You just ask people the question. You know, what is your present religion of any and they get to check whatever box that the spirit moves them to check. Um and and that can be complicated sometimes cuz you're like, "Wait a minute, how can you, you know, for instance, um, evangelicals, you, you say you're even, you say you're Protestant, you say you're evangelical, two separate questions. And then you say you never attend church. A lot of people go, wait a minute. You can't, you can't do those things. Evangelicals have to attend church. And in my approach to surveys is very simple. It's a, a paraphrase of Maya Angelou, which is when people show you who they are, believe them. For me, it's when people tell you who they are, believe them. So if you want to tell me that you're a never attending evangelical, it's not my job to say you're not an evangelical. It's my job to figure out why you said that, you know, why you made those selections, what was going on in your mind that got you to that place. And so when we talk about, you know, why did someone pick nothing in particular instead of picking Protestant or Catholic? I think they're making a very important declaration about how they see themselves in the world and who their people are. You know, they don't they, I, I don't want to hang out with Catholics anymore. I don't think like Catholics anymore. Even though I grew up Catholic and I got baptized Catholic and I went through communion as a Catholic. I am not a Catholic anymore. That tells me something very, very important about how they see themselves and position themselves in the social and political landscape of America. So I, I'm a big believer in just asking people straight up, what are you? And just letting them go from there. What factors account for the growth of the nuns? Because I could imagine you could have people being born into a second, third generation non-religious home and that growing. I could imagine people being de-churched. Where is this group of the nuns going, coming from and why is it growing so significantly? Yeah, so the most important thing I want people to know is that most nuns are made, not grown. Um, most people in America are still growing up in religious households. Obviously, that's declined over time. But even amongst the youngest adults today, 
80% of them say they grew up in a religious household of one type or another. So most people who are nuns were not nuns from the cradle. You know, they were not second or third generation atheists. They became non-religious. And, and what we know is that typically we ask people actually in the Great Dechurching book, at what age were, did you consider yourself the most religious? And the, the, the average answer was somewhere between 12 and 15 years old. Right. So, you know, young teenage years, youth group years, and then something happens along the way. To me, the boat gets the leakiest between 15 and 25 years old. And that's where most people kind of drift away from the religion in which they were raised for all kinds of reasons, by the way. Um, it could be um, politics. I mean, we, we cannot discount the role of politics in, in religion. The Pew Gap or the God Gap, whatever you want to call it, has never been larger than it is right now. Amongst people who identify as politically conservative, um, only 12% of them are non-religious today. Amongst people who identify as politically liberal, 50% are non-religious today. So it's for people who are left of center politically, especially if you're white, you have a really hard time being a a Protestant or Catholic because you think the church is continuing to turn the right and you don't want to be associated with those things. So I think politics is playing a huge role in this. Um, we also can't discount uh, social media and the internet is a really interesting one. People bring it up to me all the time. Like I know the answer. It's the internet. I go, I think you're probably right, because, but I can't prove it because almost everyone in America got the internet in a five-year window of time. So it happened so quickly. There was no reference group. They were like, okay, you people can't get the internet for 20 years. We're going to figure out what the internet did. <laughs> right, right. You know, so, I mean, it sounds so good. I can't prove it empirically, but I do think there's a value in saying it's easier to learn about other religions today than it ever has been before. You can go on YouTube and say, you know, what do Muslims believe and have a wonderfully produced video by a scholar of Islam who gives great information that's very detailed and very accurate. It used to be I had to go to the library and dig out the card catalog and the Dewey Decimal System. So, you know, exposing people to other religions might be part of as well or learning about their own religion in a different way might be part of as well. So it's a myriad of factors that's leading to the rise. of It's not just one simple trick that's making people leave religion. Ryan, we've had several conversations on our podcast here in in the past about the the phenomena of people who are deconstructing their faith. Um, is Is there any data that helps us understand what what percentage of the nuns have actually l- completely left the faith that they grew up with? I mean, obviously the atheists and agnostics have, but th- yeah. that that uh, that other group of the nuns, how does that connect with this phenomena of faith deconstruction? And by the way, you're using deconstruction in terms of deconversion. Deconversion. That's in right. In that terms. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, in the Great Dechurching, one of the interesting findings we had was. One like one thing, two things actually that young people can do to make it less likely for them to leave church is to regularly attend a church when they're in college, and also be part of a college ministry. Hmm. Those two things were almost like a like a immunization, you know, it was like a, a vaccine hmm. against de-churching because it kind of kept them on the right track. It is very easy to fall away from religion in 2023. Because you have so many more options and ways to entertain mm-hmm. yourselves. I don't think we fully understand like how much society's changed and how easy it is to entertain yourself and how hard it was 30 or 40 years ago. You know, Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Uh, it was published in the early 1990s where he basically makes the argument we're not we're not joining stuff anymore. 
right? Whether it be um, uh, the Elks or the Moose or bowling leagues. That's actually where the title of the book comes from, is we bowl alone now, not with other people. And he blamed it on cable television because it was like 1991, right? Which, you know, for them, it was like, woo, we can watch 30 channels now. This is really exciting. <laughs> you know, the updated version to me is like tweeting alone, Facebooking alone, Instagramming alone, Netflixing alone, TikToking alone, right? We can entertain ourselves more than ever before. And I think when we talk about this deconstruction idea, I think for a lot of people, the reason they're deconstructing and they're kind of, you know, or deconverting, whatever we want to call it, leaving their faith behind is because they don't have people in their lives who come beside them and say, I went through the same things at the same time. They're almost doing this in isolation. And I think, you know, there, there are times in our lives when we need to understand that there's, we need to have people around us that we can talk to and be honest and open about what we're feeling and what we're thinking and what we're believing or not believing anymore and hearing from wise counsel about, hey, I was in the exact same spot you were in, and here's what got me through. Here's a thought for you to consider in the moment that you're in to try to move you from this stage of your life to the next stage of your life. If we don't have those guardrails, and we're not having those guardrails because we're not joining anything, we're not creating social connection anymore, I think it's very easy for us to get wrapped up in our own mind and kind of spiral into this deconstruction mindset. Guardrails are good. Having friends is good. And I think part of deconstruction has been driven by the fact it's, it's, it's almost done always in isolation. Ryan, you talk about this secularization thesis and, and clarify, correct me if I'm wrong. It's this idea of societies become more economically and, and educationally advanced. There's less and less room and need for God. So first off, clarify what's meant by that. And mm -hmm. is the U.S. an exception to this or is it kind of experiencing a delayed secularization a few decades behind, say, maybe Canada and or Europe? Yeah. So um, there is a, a burgeoning um, amount of work in anthropology and psychology specifically trying to figure out like where this idea of God comes from. And the understanding is that we are meaning making machines. We want to try to understand why we don't like randomness. It doesn't sit well with our brains. And so we try to find reasons why things happen. So if it doesn't rain for three years and all our crops die and we all die of starvation, why is that? Well, because God's mad at us, not because of meteorology or climatology or, or science. It's because God's mad at us. Or why did my child cough twice and die? Because I've sinned against God, and that's my punishment for those sins, not because he had tuberculosis or some other genetic disease. So the secularization theory basically says that what happened over time is that we've replaced we, we've answered our questions with science and we don't need God anymore. So the more education we got, the more answers we got, and the more answers we got, the less God that we needed. And in America, you know, if you asked me 50 years ago, are we an exception to the secularization rule? The answer is, oh my gosh, yes. We are way, 1970s America is way more religious than Western Europe. Western Europe, I mean, secularized incredibly rapidly in the post-war period. I mean, churches were closing by the thousands in Western Europe. Even today, by the way, we are way more religious than we should be based on secularization theory. For instance, we have an economy that's very similar to Sweden in terms of GDP. Only about 12% of Swedes say religion is very important to them. It's 52% of Americans say religion is very important to them. We should be either a lot poorer or a lot less religious to get back on the trend line. So you know, really what we're seeing in America, I think, is kind of a reversion to the mean. We were always going to secularize. It just took a while. And now we're kind of coming close. We're not, I don't think we're ever going to get to the level of Europe in terms of secularization, but we're moving closer to that level every year. 
Ryan, I remember here reading the, the sociologist Will Herberg say that America at, at, is at the same time the most religious and one of the most secular countries in the world. Uh, and part of the reason for that, I think, was that religious faith had become largely privatized for individuals and was not, you know, was not culturally engaged uh, and was just was simply a private matter between them and their God. Uh, would that account? Would that help account for the difference between where secularization has gone in the U.S. and where it's gone in Europe and Canada and other places? Yeah, I think we cannot discount the role of rugged individualism when it comes to American religion. You know, if you even think about the language of evangelicalism as having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? I think that that the individualization of American religion, in some ways, has made it very durable. You know, it's hard to to overcome that. But at the same time, I think there are some real downsides to that from a sociological perspective. You know, Emile Durkheim, who was this this French, uh, probably wrote the very first empirical paper book in um, it was about suicide. And he went to morgues around around Paris and collected death records from people. And they actually kept really good ones back in those days. So it was like not just like age and gender. It was also religion. And so we collected all these records trying to figure out what religious group was more likely to commit suicide than the others. And what he found was that Protestants were more likely to commit suicide than Catholics were. Hmm. And he theorized one of the reasons was because Protestantism was such an individualized religion, while Catholicism was much more communal in its orientation. And so, you know, individualization is great. And I think it's one one of the reasons America is one of the greatest countries on earth, because we try to do something for ourselves. But there are some real downsides to not having a more communal understanding of faith and society. So you talk a lot about the intersection of kind of faith and politics. And this quote jumped out to me. You said, quote, political concerns are driving religious behavior more than theological beliefs are guiding political convictions. So would people leave their church before they would leave their politics? And would they also leave their faith before their politics? So this is probably the biggest change in how we understand religion and politics since I've been doing it. I started in 2005. The understanding was always that um, religion is the first cause and then politics is downstream of that. So, Mm. you know, we have like a religious lens in our head and we look at everything in the world through, you know, have the mind of Christ. Right. To use an evangelical term. But what's changed is that now the data's gotten better and we're theorizing better. And there's it's almost undeniable now that people are picking their religion based on their politics more than the reverse. Wow. So if I'm a conservative, I'm not going to go to an Episcopal church because it tends to be more left of center. I'm going to go to an evangelical church, a Southern Baptist church, because they align more with how I view the world. And if I'm a, a, a liberal and I'm in rural America, especially, there's really no liberal churches left in rural America. So I'm leaving religion entirely. People are picking uh, their religion based on their politics. And politics has almost become religion for some people. It's become the master lens through which we look at the world. And I think that's honestly, it's never it's not been that way before. We look at the late 1980s. Um, if you went to an evangelical church, you were just as likely to sit next to a Republican as you were a Democrat. Um, it's sitting in the main line. And same thing in the Catholic Church, too. They were almost evenly divided in the late 1980s on the issue of politics. And now these churches have become so ideologically sorted out that, that I think it's driving this it's, – it's making it even worse. You know, the, the gulf – the polar – it's not just political polarization we need to talk about in America. It's also religious polarization we need to talk about. And in the future, the only kind of religion that's really going to exist 
is is conservative religion. Um, the main line, which are, were sort of moderate Protestants, were 50% of America in the 1950s. They're 10% of America today, going to be 5% of America very soon. Meanwhile, evangelicals are about 21% of America today. There's actually more evangelicals in America today than there were in the 1970s. Evangelicals are not going away. It's the middle, the moderate part of Protestantism that's declining very rapidly. So I see certain conservative churches responding to this trend differently. Some move into politics and start publicly making the case for life, for a certain candidate. And it's kind of like they're leaning into the fact that people see religion through the lens of politics. Other churches move more apolitical and try not to preach and talk about politics from the pulpit. Does the data show that either one is more effective? I'm not asking a biblical or theological (laughs) worldview question. Is there any data on which one is more effective in terms of numbers and reaching the nuns? So um, we actually have, we actually ask um, a bunch of weekly churchgoers in the last 12 months, have you heard any of the following uh, issues mentioned from the pulpit? Okay. And we gave them a whole list of immigration, healthcare, abortion, same-sex marriage, even something so innocuous, just voting. Okay. So not even like, you know, political in one way or the other, the number one response of weekly churchgoers, what, the, what issue they've heard in the last, and it was check all that applies. They could check 10 if they wanted to. The number one response, 33% of people said none of the above, not a single issue was mentioned from the pulpit in the last 12 months. And uh, over half of the sample picked one issue or no issue at all were spoken from the pulpit. So the vast majority of churches are not preaching politics from the pulpit on mm. any regular basis. Now, I think pastors have to decide which way they're going to go on this. And, and I'm always reminded of Michael Jordan's wisdom on <laughs> questions like this, um, the great prophet of our yep. time. Um, he was asked why he was not more political when he was playing basketball. And he said, because Republicans buy sneakers too. Yep. And I think that is a pretty good encapsulation of how I would I would tell pastors to approach this because, listen, even amongst Republicans, a lot of them don't want politics from the pulpit. Um, I think there's a small sliver of the American population who wants politics preached in the pulpit, wants their pastor to talk about Trump and abortion and gay marriage and things like that. And they will find those churches that do that. But for the vast majority of Americans, they want a, a strong wall between what their pastor talks about politically and theologically on a Sunday morning. So I think most pastors are better served – if they want to speak about politics, and I talk about this in the in, in the nuns, they should talk about politics holistically and give both sides a lot of grief because I don't think either party speaks completely for the gospel. There's this concept called Imago Dei. I'm talking to theologians about theology. I apologize. But, you know, every human being is born in the image and likeness of God, which means that God cares about the unborn, but he also cares about the immigrant. You know, so both parties are not doing the right thing on both those issues in some ways. So, if we talk about politics holistically, I think that's a better way to discuss. Po- don't don't ignore them. Don't be partisan. Be po- bipartisan in who you criticize. I think that's always been the role of the church in America is to point out when politicians are wrong on certain issues on both sides. And that's hard to do, but I think it's a necessary thing. Well, I'm impressed that you use the Latin term for the, the image of God. Uh, very impressive. Uh, and I think p- it's important for our listeners to know, too, that no political platform was written with biblical fidelity as its goal. So they're, they're all, I mean, they're all going to be mixed bags, uh, and, and therefore I think worthy of the criticism and that, that our, our theological convictions stand above our political convictions and, our, and offer the critique 
affirm where they are consistent with the, with how we how we understand the scripture, but also critique where they are at variance with those. Uh, now, one one final question, Ryan. What uh, when it comes to the religious landscape in the U.S.? What give me one or two things that you're encouraged about? Okay, so the nuns have seemed to stop rising. That is something that I think is, is it, we we've it almost felt like it was never going to stop. The line was going to keep going up into the right every single survey and just never ever end until it got to one hundred percent. We were all nuns, and that was it. Um, <laughs> The, the data actually, if you look at the trend lines amongst the youngest adult Americans, so people who are like between the ages of 18 and 25 or so, a 25-year-old is just as likely to be a nun as an 18-year-old is now. So the line is sort of flattened out and maybe even curved down a little bit. And this is a consistent finding I've seen in multiple surveys over the last several years. And now the number is high. You know, it's, it's probably between 42 and 45 percent of the youngest adult Americans are nuns. But it stopped increasing. So I don't think we're going to see a future of America, at least in my lifetime, where 60, 70 percent of Americans are non-religious. I think it might get to 45 or maybe even 50 percent might become non-religious, but it's never going to be a strong majority or in that camp. So I think in some ways that's, that's very encouraging. The other thing I want people to know is that the relationship between education and religion is probably not what you think it is. Educated people are actually more likely to be religious than non-educated people. Um, the people who are the most likely to be nuns are those with a high school diploma or less. The people who are the least likely to be nuns are those with a graduate degree. So don't be afraid to send your kids out to get an education. Actually, in some ways, it inoculates them. And on, on, um, on church attendance, weekly church attendance, the people who are the most likely to go to church this Sunday – are people with uh, college degrees, four-year college degrees and above, making between sixty and hundred thousand dollars a year? So it's not it's it, it's you know religion has become actually the bastion of people who have, have good educations and good incomes now. So you know don't be afraid of education. As America has actually become more educated, I don't even think that's the primary driver of secularization. It's it's part of the story, but it's definitely not pushing people um, from the pews on Sunday morning. Ryan, this is so helpful. I think one of the most insightful things I think you said is that between the ages of 15 and 25, if if students are involved in a church and when they go to college involved in a campus ministry, uh, the chances of them becoming one of the nuns is pretty dramatically reduced. Uh, and that I think that's really I think really good advice for parents uh, and for for those of us that that uh, make our living from Christian colleges. Because uh, we have, we say we have students who say, you know, I, you know, I can have a great relationship with God, but I don't need the church. Uh, and getting getting our students plugged into meaningful churches, and particularly in those few first few years after college, that's a really good insight. Um, not only for, for for those of us who are teaching a Christian college, but also for for churches as they reach out to those folks in their in their early to mid twenties. So this has been super helpful, super insightful. Ryan, we're so glad for you being for you being with us. We're going to commend to our li- our listeners your book called "The Nuns" N O N E S by Ryan Burge, where they came from, who they are, and where are they going. It's been been great to have you with us. Thanks for uh, the conversation. Thanks. So, and don't my Substack is graphsaboutreligion.com, Two posts a week, nothing but graphs about religion. If you like data, then you're going to like what I put out there. So, graphsaboutreligion.com. Thanks, guys. Great. Appreciate that. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. 
Think Biblically Podcast brought to you by Tablet School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Master's in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you'd like to submit a comment, ask a question, or make suggestions on issues you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like us to consider, you can email us at thinkbiblically at biola.edu. That's thinkbiblically at biola.edu. If you enjoyed today's conversation with our friend Ryan Burge, give us a rating on your podcast app, and please do share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.